Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. So here we are with another episode, and this week, I guess... A little bit of a trigger warning. It's pretty gruesome. And this type of crime, while it might not seem rare to us that consume true crime content, is actually very rare and very grotesque. So just a little bit of a trigger warning. Because there's definitely going to be some explicit descriptions, but not in a... It's a theme. It's overall theme. I guess you would say. Right. It's kind of hard to describe. It's not done to be crude and rude. It's more done to give you all the facts. Exactly. You know how we keep it here on the Murder Diaries. With that, this is the story of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. Savannah Greywind was born August 9th, 1995 in Belcourt, North Dakota. Her family then moved to the Spirit Lake Reservation about 250 miles away when she was 9 going on 10. She was actually a member of the Spirit Lake Sioux tribe on her dad's side as well as a Chippewa on her mom's side. With that, she identified as an indigenous woman, and that is why her family chose to reside at that time on the reservation. And on that reservation and or around it is where Savannah would continue on growing up throughout her adolescence and attend high school in the area, that sort of thing. Her parents describe her as nice, very loving, lovely, and caring. Savannah really loved children, and they loved her as well. Savannah also had a heart for the elderly. She just really seemed to have like a super, super tender soul. She came from a large indigenous family and was the oldest of four siblings. And I actually really connect to this as well. I'm the youngest of four and my extended family is huge too. So I definitely connect with that. So Savannah was in many ways a typical teen. She was enjoying herself at school and usually did pretty well. And while in high school, 
Savannah met her boyfriend, Ashton Matheny. He was a freshman and she was a sophomore. Sometimes there's crossover with the grade below you. So with Savannah being born in August, she and Ashton had some age overlap. And when they were both 16, they made it official and became boyfriend and girlfriend, despite the fact that Savannah was not allowed to date until she was 18. So she had a little bit of a rebellious streak in her. Nothing too crazy, but she obviously was going against her parents' wishes at this point. Yeah, in a way, she did when it came to this relationship. But what's more important to think about in this situation when it comes to Savannah is just how much she was risking when it came to the relationship with those and her family for this Mm -hmm. teenage romance, if you will, with Ashton. So it really shows just how much she wanted to be with him, liked being with him, and put those normal traditions within her family and those rules aside. So her parents were somewhat strict and protective of her when it came to boys. Mm -hmm. But they did always just, you know, let their kids be kids and let them be themselves. So with that being said... They, again, were 16, and Ashton had a car. So Savannah would sneak out of her window and run down the street to meet him where he would be parked. Total just... It's a teenage movie. Yeah, it's a teenage movie, kind of puppy love stuff, where they did keep some things. I don't want to say a secret because her parents weren't stupid. They kind of knew what was going on a little bit, and eventually... They sat Ashton down. In the interviews of the episode of Killer Motive I watched, the dad was interviewed and he made it sound like it was he and Savannah's brothers, which is interesting since Savannah was the oldest. So these would have been, you know, younger, younger siblings. So it was a brother or brothers. And they chatted with him and just kind of got an idea of like, you know, what the intentions were with Ashton and got to know him a little bit more. And Savannah was hiding in her bedroom the whole time. It was really cute watching the mom, like, recall this moment. Mm -hmm. And to her, with their family traditions, you could almost feel a sense of pride that, like, yes, my husband and my son or sons took care of Savannah by doing this. Like, this wasn't odd or extra in their community. And I think it shows a lot that Ashton sat down with them. And it also shows how protective they are of their sister, of their daughter, this is a close-knit family and they're going to be there for each other and make sure that she is in a relationship that's healthy and respectable. Exactly. It wasn't necessarily that they didn't want her to be with Ashton. When we talk about this conversation, this moment with Ashton, Savannah's dad recalls that he knew from that moment how much Ashton really wanted to be with Savannah as well, and that he really loved his daughter very much. So that speaks volumes about a 16-year-old boy. Definitely. And a grown man can tell that he's going to treat the daughter right, and this grown man's going to say, look, I set a principle of 18, but I'm going to be okay with this relationship. It's two years earlier than I want my daughter to date, but 
I'm okay with this. So they were able to really be flexible with what they had in mind because they saw what Savannah and Ashton had. I think it also emphasizes that, yes, her parents were strict, but like you said, they were flexible. They were willing to work with Savannah and her feelings and her maturity level. They saw that she was able to handle a relationship younger than what they had expected. And... They took things as they came, despite the fact that they had rules. And to me, my opinion, that is awesome parenting. Definitely. Not that it's my duty to to judge their parenting, but it also just gives you a clue of like what it was like for Savannah to grow up. Very much a home of discipline, but love and understanding. And support. And support. Absolutely. That's a picture of Savannah's formative years. But let's talk a little bit about the trajectory of Savannah's life. Where did she want to go? What did she want to do? Well, being that tender soul we talked about a little earlier, Savannah wanted to go into nursing at some capacity. And she wanted to use this in the capacity of maybe caring for the elderly in some way. So with that, and Savannah sort of being on this path of growing up a little bit quickly, with a really deep, heavy relationship, right? Or I should say serious relationship at a young age and just kind of wanting to grow up a little bit. After she graduated from high school, she became a CNA, a certified nursing assistant. Uh, And this was done through a program called Next Step. And she completed this program in 2014 and she would have graduated high school in 2013. Okay, so she was about 19, 20. Yes. At this time, is she still with Ashton? Yes, she is still with Ashton. Okay, high school sweethearts. High school sweethearts. They're going strong. We don't know a ton about their relationship at this time other than that, yeah, they were together. And, you know, I'm sure they had their ups and downs like any other relationship. But for the most part, there wasn't really a lot of worry there uh, within the family when it came to their relationship. Again, being on that path of kind of growing up and um, wanting to be an adult out there in the real world, Savannah took her CNA certification and began working at a nursing home. It had a different name when she worked there, but it is now called Eventide. There's a couple of locations, and this is important because around this time, her family decided that it would be best to head back to Fargo. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. So remember, she kind of was born and grew up until nine in the overall Fargo area Mm -hmm. and then moved to the reservation and they decided that it would be best to kind of move back to Fargo. And by January of 2016, they had done just that. What was lucky is that this event-tied company, nursing home facilities group, if you will, had a facility in the area and they did allow her to transfer. So Savannah kept her job and that also just kind of shows who she wanted to be and what she was up to at that time too, of like, yes, I'm working. I want to keep working. 
I want to stay with this company. I want to grow with this company. I want to transfer. And that's what the family did. Well, and it shows responsibility at a young age. Exactly. Exactly. And she just knew what she wanted to do and how she wanted to be. And she was doing it. During this move, it did disrupt a little bit of what she had in mind, right, with this relationship with Ashton, because it took her over 200, about 250 miles or so away from Ashton during this move. But they stayed together. That wasn't really an issue because guess what? He was on the road anyways, doing construction within Minnesota and North Dakota. So he wasn't just always in the area anyway. So it it didn't cause a huge issue and they only grew stronger. She and Ashton spoke like every day for hours. He mentioned in an interview that only one time did they not speak for about two days. And it seemed like he was sort of remembering it a bit torturously. And it wasn't because of a fight or anything like that. Savannah broke her phone. Oh, just like any other teenager. I know we're kind of giggling because it's like, yes, who hasn't had a moment where they broke a dang phone or whatever? And so with that, that's the only time he can really remember a day or a moment in time where he did not speak to her. So that also was just telling, like, they were thick as thieves. Absolutely. And it sounds like they had a very healthy communication with one another and It sounds like a very mature relationship, too, for their age. It really was. And these two little lovebirds decided at their young age, which was about 20, 21-ish at the time, that they would have a child. They, They planned this. They wanted to have a baby. They just felt that. They felt their connection was there. And by early 2017... At just 21 years old, Savannah was pregnant. Her parents were not necessarily stoked that at such a young age, she was going to kind of be complicating the relationship and what she had going on with the pregnancy. But by no means were they upset with this couple. Again, just letting them be who they were, which by this time, by 2017, they've been dating for many many years. So she would have started high school in about 2009, 2010. So if they were started dating around 10 or 11, they've been together for years. It's an established relationship and neither party is going anywhere. So they recognize that this is a couple who loves each other and they're adults. They're making this decision for themselves. Right. And parents aren't always going to be happy with decisions their children make, but it sounds like they still supported her. 100%. They were thrilled to have a grandchild. And again, Ashton and Savannah had been together for five years or more by this point. So they're established. No one's really that worried. And while pregnant, Savannah remained living with her parents because one of the bigger concerns was, okay, right now Ashton's on the road. With this job, you need to stay with us. Because he can't be there with you during this pregnancy, but we will. Right. For clarification, when she moved to Fargo to work as a CNA at Event Tide, Mm -hmm. her parents also moved to Fargo because I know they were on the um, reservation prior to that. Yes. The whole family, and I believe this is quite cultural too, very collectivistic in culture, at least with her particular immediate family. They 
all packed it up and moved. And that is why she input for the transfer. They just decided it was going to give more options and be a better place for their family at the time, having been there before. So yes, that's why they all picked up and moved together. And Savannah was able to safely stay with them while pregnant, which as you know, pregnancy comes with many ups and downs and health risks, et cetera, um, both, you know, exciting and scary. So that was a really great situation for her until Ashton would eventually move there full time as well. And she and Ashton were planning once the baby was born that they would be living together sometime maybe around September. That is actually when Savannah was due was earlier on in September. So that was kind of the gig. He's on the road now during the pregnancy, but he's getting things in order, getting money, money. and we'll move to Fargo. Exactly. The plan is September and up until, or throughout her pregnancy, it was relatively good. I mean, we don't really. Yeah, Relatively uneventful, not a lot of information on anything um, out of the ordinary going on in life there. Um, I have seen some pictures from her social media that have been used in articles and um, montages, video montages, etc. about her um, that show her in her scrubs, pregnant, you know, just enjoying life. Yeah, it was really sweet. So she's just really happy with where she was in life. And um, yeah, nothing uneventful until August 19th of 2017. Savannah's home, her father's home with her, other family members, and they get a knock on the door. And she's about eight months pregnant at the time, if she was due in September. Yeah, yeah. She is due, you know. In a couple weeks. For for all intents and purposes, any day. Yeah, basically. So yeah, she's eight months pregnant. She's home with a couple family members, including her dad, knock on the door. And there really wasn't anything to be worried about because who had knocked on the door ended up being their upstairs neighbor, Brooke. Brooke came downstairs to ask Savannah if she would try on a dress that she was sewing. This was a little bit odd to me because Savannah was pregnant. So I'm wondering if Brooke pretended it was a maternity dress. Right, yeah. It's just a little odd, like, somebody whose body has been changing and will then be changing again very soon postpartum. It just seems odd to ask them to be somebody that you would need to measure anything with and try something on. Exactly. So my guess is, yeah, oh, hey, I'm making this maternity dress. Can you try it on for me? And and. As we go on in the story, you're going to find out maybe why that was possibly the ruse. Right. Okay. So just backing up a little bit, a little more about Brooke. Did they have a relationship? Were they close to Brooke? What's going on there? We know that Brooke was the upstairs neighbor. We talked about that. But no, they didn't really know her other than living in the same kind of apartment building. That was it. So she was familiar to them as, you know, seeing walking in and out of the same building. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't a camaraderie there. There wasn't a friendship. There was no relationship. That's it. Just uh, we know her. So sometimes you might feel secure with that, even though you don't know them that well, because you see them all the time. Right. It's a familiar face. And that 
is a false sense of security. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And another sense of security that Brooke gave Savannah was that she offered her $20 to try the dress on. Hey, look, I need a little help. I'll give you 20 bucks if you just come upstairs to my apartment for a short time and try this dress on so that I can finish up sewing it and making it. Okay, so it feels a little more legitimate. Like, yeah. Here, I'm going to pay you for your time. You're helping me out. I'll help you out, etc. 100%. What's interesting is Savannah's dad's response was, you don't need $20. Which I kind of get. Like, $20 is nothing to scoff at. But at the same time, Savannah's dad's like, you're protected. You're, you're taken care of. You don't need to be going up to our random neighbor's apartment. And wasting your time up there for some dress that's not going to benefit you. It also makes me wonder if he got a weird vibe from her and this was his way of saying, maybe don't choose to help her. You know what I mean? So it makes me wonder if that was like some subconscious uh, feeling that he got. It could have been. It, It may have been. But regardless... Savannah did go ahead and go upstairs to Brooke's apartment because she had a heart for helping. As we know, she loved kids and the elderly. That's who she was. She was a helper. It makes so much sense, though. And we can kind of see Brooke preying on this kind, tender-hearted woman. Absolutely. If for no other reason to know that she would be one that would come up and help her. If nothing else. Exactly. So, yes, she goes upstairs. It's around 1.30 p.m. at this time. So there's also a sense of security there in that... It's during the day. It's broad daylight. Right. Brooke is female. We know the world loves to underestimate a female. So here we are. She's upstairs, supposedly helping out with this dress. Savannah's mom uh, ran some errands. And when she came back... Savannah wasn't back yet. And she asks, well, was Savannah back yet? Somehow she kind of knew what was going on, whether she left for her errands after this supposed visit Savannah would be having with Brooke or what have you. But regardless, she gets back from the errands and asks Savannah's father, she's not back yet? What the heck? Like, right. where, where is she? And this prompted her dad to be like, hey, you know what? looking at my watch that's not on my wrist right now. (laughs) It is getting late. Like, where is she? Like, what the heck? I better go up there. So he goes up the stairs and knocks on Brooke's door, apartment five. Savannah and her family live downstairs in apartment two. Well, Brooke answers the door and she's just like, no, she's not here. Like, oh, she left. To which her dad replies, okay, well, if she left, she didn't go home. Where did she go then? She left to go where? Because it wasn't home. And she says, she went home. So she's basically saying, I was done with Savannah a long time ago. She left to go back home to you. She's not there. I don't know what to tell you kind of thing, right? But her dad had a gut feeling and asked, can I look around your apartment then? And she didn't let him. I love this dad. I love this we dad. Love him. He is protective 
And he's trusting his gut instinct. Absolutely. But regardless, she did not let him search the apartment, which at some point I get, like, I'm sure he wanted to burst in there, but what if it was for nothing? You have to remember at that moment, you don't know what's to come and all you have is a gut feeling and you, you've you never been in this situation before. So no, he didn't push his way in. He's a man. She's a female right. in her late 30s. How could he just push his way in there if she won't let him look around? So he doesn't get to look around, but her family knew something was amiss. Number one, because she's eight months pregnant and not home and her wallet was not with her and her car was still within the vicinity of where it would normally be parked. I don't know the full parameters of where she would typically park. Same spot, not the same spot, general area. Like, I don't know, but we do know that her car was there. Things just aren't looking good. Well, right, because where's an eight-month-old pregnant woman going to go if she doesn't have her car? And just as a reminder to some listeners, when you are that pregnant, typically it's Oh, you can barely walk. Number one, you can barely walk. Number two, it's typically recommended that you're not really going anywhere alone because you could have a medical emergency. It's the same reason why you're not allowed to fly at that level of pregnancy. Also, it's August. So it's probably... Hot. Ew, yeah, it's hot. She can barely walk. It's not recommended for her to go far from home. There's not many places she could be. Exactly. At 4.27 p.m., her mom calls the police and reports Savannah missing. At 5 p.m., an officer was at the apartment taking a statement, and they told the police officers while doing the statement that the last place she was was upstairs in apartment five, Brooke's apartment. So they told the officer the story. Brooke knocked on her door, asked Savannah to try and dress. She never came home. That's all the info they had, and that's what they were giving the police. So, of course, the police are saying, okay, well, that's just upstairs. We'll go talk to her. No problem. So right. I do appreciate that the police did take immediate action for the most part. And they part. were willing to listen to the family's concerns. Yes. They were willing to listen. They heard it and they went upstairs. Instead of ignoring it and just saying, oh, it was just a woman from upstairs and she's 21. Don't worry about it. She'll turn up. No, they went upstairs and they said, hey, Brooke, what's going on here? So Brooke was home when they went up there and she was home with her living boyfriend, William. The officer was allowed in to have a look around. But he didn't see anything. There was nothing that sparked suspicion. This also includes the fact that they didn't see Savannah there or any trace of her. It presumably looked like if Savannah had been there during the day that she left. And was long gone. Right. And was long gone and left in the condition that she had arrived at the apartment in. But hours later, Savannah was still missing. So the family, being super frightened of course, calls the police again. By this time, she had been missing for nine hours. This was obviously gravely concerning for the reasons we have already spoken about, and it was gravely concerning because of the fact that she had gone missing from... From upstairs. From upstairs, from so close to where her home was. It was a bit baffling. How could somebody eight months pregnant have gone missing from so close to home? Like, everything was just like, what the heck is happening? I cannot imagine what those parents were going through. I'm sure they were thinking, 
the worst already. Did she go into labor? Is she okay? Is she at the hospital? Is she unconscious? What's going on? And I really respect that they didn't let one know deter them from following up with the police. Hey, she's still not home. Where is she? Help us out. That's right. And you bring up a great point in that the relationship between the indigenous people in the area and the police, it's not the best relationship. It is a bit of an issue. This is expressed by the father. And they do hold that even while cooperating during this time, they don't feel that everything was handled the best that it could have been and that that is because they are indigenous and they do feel as though they are treated a bit differently than people who are not um, indigenous people. So that should kind of just be said on the outset so that we have an idea of how the family's feeling when they're dealing with law enforcement as well as how they feel now. I think these overtones are important. Regardless of how we feel or how we see what the police did, this is what they're saying. I do want to interject, though, from one of our past episodes where we talked to Brittany Jewell about her sister, Mm -hmm. Jessie Grace Moore, who is missing. She had a really, she said something really impactful to me and I had never considered it like this. And Brittany told us, as a family member, you'll never feel like the police did their job until your family member is found. Yeah. And I I can only imagine for this family, Savannah's family, that it was, that feeling was multiplied by the fact that they had these additional struggles or, you know, you know what I mean? The fact that. Yeah. They had additional hurdles and barriers yes. and things to. And emotions to combat while they worked with law enforcement. Right. And again, the issue of how far can an eight-month pregnant woman get or go? Why is she not still in this apartment? How could she not be? Like you mentioned earlier, it's the middle of the day. Why didn't anyone see her? Mm Mm-hmm. It's not like she's walking very fast. No, she can't go anywhere too quickly. That idea was also held by law enforcement for the most part, and they head back up to Brooke and William's apartment. They have another look around, but of course, nothing was found suspicious. Uh, Again, I can't even imagine the frustration. When you're saying nothing suspicious, can you describe to me what exactly the police were expecting to find or what they were looking for? I suppose this is just my estimation. They would have been looking for a shoe, an article of clothing, a license, a purse, uh, an earring, uh, evidence of a struggle, anything evidence of a struggle. Are there any weird marks in this apartment? Is there blood? Is there blood? Is Savannah hiding somewhere? Is there... They don't know why she would have gone missing. Did she go missing on her own? Did she get murdered? Because you got to remember, their frame of mindset right now isn't whether she was murdered or not. Or she is a missing person at this point. She could be alive. She may not be alive. They have no idea. So they're just looking for anything that would show that Savannah didn't leave the way that Brooke said she left, which was intact. Walking on her own right. two feet, back downstairs. On her own accord. To apartment two, 
on her own accord. Yes. Got it. So nothing being found, of course, would be so frustrating, probably for law enforcement and the family alike. So after another day had gone by, Savannah's family calls the police again to get them to come back. This is how to be an advocate for yourself, for your family, for your loved ones. They didn't care about the police previously not finding anything. They knew something was sketchy and they stuck to their guns. I I really wish that all families could do this. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen, but I really admire that they stuck to their guns and they didn't care what the outcome was going to be. They just had to know. Yeah, they enacted this air of tenacity. Exactly. They weren't going to back down or let down. And that just really, again, goes back to that family culture right there. And we love to see it. Because this was the third time, this time, it wasn't just any police officer searching Brooke's apartment for the third time. It was detectives. Thank God. Finally. I mean, the ones trained to know what to look for. Yes. Yes. We're elevating here. That's also what that's showing you is law enforcement is believing the family and they're elevating or they're at least concerned that, okay, visit number three, call number three from this family. Woman's still missing. Eight months pregnant. We got to get back out there. I mean, everybody truly was concerned. I think as the time passed, the third time they're getting a call, they're realizing that this woman just didn't go to 7-Eleven to get a, a soda and, you know what I mean, came back a few hours later. She's still missing. It's pretty serious. Right. It's getting serious and it's just so confusing where she could possibly be. They knew that Savannah would have had to have been on foot or had gotten into another person's car when she went missing because she was pregnant and probably couldn't have gotten too far on her own two feet. So it's either another person's car or somehow on foot very near. So they begin to canvas the area. You know, hey, have you seen this woman? She's eight months pregnant, that kind of thing. They drove around. They were asking people and looking for her. And all the while, anybody who's trying her cell phone isn't getting any response either. This mention of the cell phone to me inferred that she did go ahead and take that with her up there. Right. Because why would they have been trying to get a hold of her or expecting If it was with her wallet. Right. Yeah. I mean, unless they just couldn't find it and it was dead somewhere in the apartment. But yes, it did seem like that's something she took with her. And I don't think that'd be that weird. A lot of us, when we leave to another place, right, it's our lifeline. We take it with us. I mean- most people take it from room to room in their house. Exactly. So, yeah, it's not an uncommon thing. Like, yeah, it's also just an effort, like, if nothing else, to just not lose it. Okay, I'm going to take it with me. It's got to go where I am so I don't forget where I last had it, you know? Right. Anyways, with that, the question remained, where was Savannah? But also, why had she left? I have another question for you. Okay. Where's Ashton during all of this? The boyfriend. So we don't know where Savannah is. And now I'm curious, this woman's been missing for possibly three days. Where's the baby daddy and long-term partner? Right, because her cell phone, there's no response. Like, he's probably freaking out too, right? Right. Well, he was. 
So remembering that he was still on the road with construction between Minnesota and North Dakota and doing jobs within those two states. But as soon as, you know, the family or whoever gave him this information, assuming the family, told him that she's missing, he gets straight to Fargo. And guess what? The police want to know, where were you? Right? Right. Where have you been? Understandable. Yeah, absolutely. And there's video of him saying, look, man, I'm just want to help you guys. I want to answer any questions you have. Like, he was sitting in his, quote, interrogation, end quote, just so ready to help. And right. they checked out his alibis. It kind of seemed like there was an air where they were really hoping or banking on the fact that, like, an alibi of his wouldn't check out. Because it does kind of seem obvious, like, hey, we've got this boyfriend a really long time. She's pregnant. Maybe people are freaking out or whatever in this yeah. relationship. Maybe and he changed his mind, whatever. Who I mean, knows? Because you always do look to the, the significant other. Right. In cases like this, but I guess it really worked in his favor that he wasn't even in the state at the time. Right. Or at least he was thousands of miles away. So when you've got a timeline, you can really right. map that out. But we do have to remember that this is what detectives and investigators do. They make very educated guesses based on evidence. So, right, if right. they were trying to paint the story that he had something to do with it, they checked that out to make sure that their story was wrong. And in that particular possible option, it was wrong. His alibis checked out. It was clear he was not involved. He was completely cooperative. And this was great. But it led to a dead end. Because if it wasn't the boyfriend, that's really, if you think about it, it's kind of all they had to go off of, except for Brooke and William. But they had been up to that apartment three, three times. times. So they're thinking that that's done. But it it just proves that they were looking in the right spot and they just had to look a different way or in a different spot. Great point, because that's kind of what happened. They needed to look at the same people or apartments in a different lens or different light. But how could they get there? So also with just being at a dead end, they needed new leads and tips. So news coverage provided them with getting the word out about Savannah being missing. And it did lead to tips and other leads being phoned into the police. A report was made via this like tip line campaign of sorts. And a tip was made that Savannah was seen getting into a red truck around the time she was missing. And this red truck ends up being the new lens to view Brooke and William from. The family knew that Brooke and William had access to a red truck after another neighbor told them that William had pulled up a red truck in the back of the apartments before. So basically, news got out, like, hey, we're looking for this red truck right. that Savannah may have been seen getting into. So neighbors, of course, again, let Savannah's parents know. So now this red truck, we're going, okay, Brooke and William, what's up with this red truck? Police then pull William in for questioning and interrogation. He gave them a story about, you know, coming home. Savannah was there. 
Her dad came knocking and Savannah took off. Well, presumably he was in the shower and showering off the work of the day. You're talking about William being in the shower. Yes. So he kind of gets home like, oh, hey, Brooke. Oh, hi, Brooke's neighbor friend, Savannah, even though we don't really know each other. You think that he would have found it a bit odd that there was an eight-month pregnant woman, neighbor, that they never talked to in his apartment. But sure, whatever. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, that's kind of how he (laughs) At this point. Look, right. He sort of just glosses over it and is like, yeah, dude, I saw her. I took a shower. By the time I was out, she was gone. But he somehow also knew that her dad came knocking. It was kind of odd and a bit jumbly to kind of process. But I'm sure the police picked up on that, too. Like, yeah, nothing helpful is coming out of it. But they're looking at him a little more intently now. Right. And, of course, they bring up the red truck and that they know he's had access to a red truck before. Mm -hmm. And William claims that that's his boss's truck. Like, oh, yeah, sure, I've driven a red truck before, but it's not mine. It's my boss's. Mm -hmm. I just borrowed it. As you mentioned, nothing truly helpful came from this questioning, and everything kind of seemed plausible to the police. But we need to remember that they've already searched three times, and they're going, okay, you know, red truck was your bosses. So no, you don't really have a red truck. It's probably not your red truck that's in question here. However, they were about to get their biggest lead thus far. Police didn't necessarily back down yet on the idea that he had had access to a red truck. Mm -hmm. So they check in with William's boss to check in on those points of his story about this red truck was my boss's and just other things within the story that the boss could maybe cooperate and confirm exactly the boss confirms that yep no it's my truck that he's had access to i've i've loaned it out to him before the investigators painted it more like yes the boss says that he sometimes has this truck it's reasonable yeah it's completely reasonable whatever but the boss continues and he says well, you know, and he and Brooke just had a baby. Um, what? The detectives stop dead in their tracks and are like, say what? They had never seen any indication of a newborn baby, an infant, in that apartment during their three searches or mention of it during two hours of investigation. Yeah, that's not something you forget about. And no, and this was obviously of huge concern, knowing that Savannah was also due within weeks. They knew that she was pregnant, and they knew that they needed to figure out if it was more than just a coincidence that this talk about William and Brooke having a newborn baby was just coincidence. Who knows? Maybe. Were they foster parents and quickly got placed a baby within a matter of hours? They still had to give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. I mean, but then it calls into question, why wasn't there at least a crib? Why weren't there diapers? You know what I mean? As someone that's looked into fostering in order to foster, at least in California, you have to have a full-on nursery or bedroom for the child set up before you're even allowed to get that far in the process to get a kid. You do. So, and I'm sure the police knew all this, but like you said, they had to give them the benefit of the doubt. They had to say, well, 
this is a red flag, but let's investigate. You are correct. And there was just really none of that in the apartment. So they decide, well, let's follow William and Brooke around. Let, let's let's get some surveillance going. They wanted to surveil because they wondered if they had taken Savannah maybe to a secret location. Were they holding her hostage there? Was it indeed motivated by Savannah's baby and the fact that they wanted it? So knowing that she still had weeks to go before the birth, they're like, take us to where Savannah is. Maybe she's alive and they're waiting for this baby to be born. You know, the, again, the idea of, okay, they're creating a bit of an educated guest story. Right. They surveil and they hope that they would be led to her, but they didn't find anything with surveillance. Nothing out of the ordinary in terms of second locations or anything weird going on at night. Just normal daily activity for the most part. And that was a bit disheartening. And they didn't wait long, though, because on August 24th, after the surveillance efforts hadn't really led them to where Savannah may have been, a search warrant was issued. They couldn't wait longer and they didn't want to wait longer because they needed to get to Savannah now. She could be in danger. She could be in labor. Anything right. could be happening to this young woman who was pregnant. So every moment that they did not know where she was was a moment she could be hurt in a dangerous situation uh, that was amplified by the fact of being pregnant and ready to give birth in, you know, any week, any day. And again, going into labor. So they were really worried and they had to, they had to act. So again, on August 24th, there was a search warrant that was issued. When they arrived to search with that warrant, I want to remind listeners, a search warrant is going to give you a deeper and further permissions of what you can search, how you can search, and what you're allowed to do with items you find, I believe. like So for the most part, this warrant was going to change their search efforts, even though they'd already been there three times, and that's why it was worth it. Right. It's, it's more than a precursory search. You know, whatever's out in the open, that's what they were doing in the first three searches. If it's out in the open, they're allowed to take note of it, whatever. But now with the search warrant, they're able to dig a little deeper, like you mentioned. Right. And list specific things they want to search that they couldn't. We're not law experts, so we don't 100% know what it looks like, but let's just call it dresser. Now I can open up a dresser drawer, right? That wasn't right. open when I was here the other three times. So they take this warrant and they stroll up to apartment five, ready to search. But Brooke had blocked off the doorway. Are you kidding me? Yeah, she blocked it off with a couch. Like, she did not want to let them back in. And how to say you're guilty without saying you're guilty. Yeah, tell me you're guilty without saying you're guilty, please. So all the while, Savannah's family is downstairs in apartment two. And they notice these officers kind of storming up to apartment five. And while all this is happening, they then begin to also evacuate the whole apartment building. So everybody's outside while they're trying to get into apartment five. Um, since Brooke had blocked it off, they used battering rams to get in. I mean, it was intense, but they did get in. And when they arrive in this apartment, 
and they make their way into the bedroom. On the bed, in between pillows, was a tiny newborn baby girl. Oh, my God. Yeah. As if it's as if she's a stuffed animal or a doll you put between your pillows. Like, I don't know. I'm just thinking back like. Yeah, that's exactly growing what it's up, like. Making, what if the baby suffocated? This is Well, a lot of times so you ridiculous. might see pillows blocking a baby just in case they roll. But this is a fresh newborn. But yes. Well, she, it's a fresh newborn and it sounds like they're trying to conceal her. Basically where she was, because they did show a picture in the documentary I watched. Um, it was an episode Five of season one of Killer Motive on Oxygen. Basically, if you took your two pillows and laid them flat on a bed, Mm -hmm. the baby was in between those two. So it kind of kept her head straight, but with soft pillows. And she was just kind of um, swaddled there in between Mm -hmm. the pillows. So she did look sweet and she did honestly look pretty safe, like as if you were going to be taking a shower and you need to put your baby somewhere that's right. near, okay. whatever. So she was pretty much safe, but she was just laying there when they found her. And so, of course, they immediately take this baby out. Now, William and Brooke appear to be very much Caucasian. Okay. This baby definitely was olive with darker hair Again, a newborn, so these things can change when you have a newborn. Oftentimes, right. dark hair goes light or light hair goes dark, blah, blah, blah. But this baby just didn't look like, when you're looking at that picture. Well, she had indigenous characteristics. And yes. we know that Savannah and Ashton were indigenous. Absolutely. We know Savannah for sure. Ashton does seem to be as well, but that is unconfirmed. Either way, both parents had olive skin, dark eyes, dark hair. And so did baby. So here we are with a baby in between the pillows. Investigators grab the baby and they run. They run out of that apartment with the baby, get it on to an ambulance, and the ambulance takes it to the hospital. And you've got to remember picturing what's happening. You've got a group of people who live in this apartment building watching investigators rush like a little tiny wrapped up baby into an ambulance, including the baby's possible grandparents. And everyone knows that Savannah was weeks within giving birth. It's not that far of a stretch to assume that this could be her child. Right. And everybody kind of just did a bit assume that. Savannah's parents weren't allowed to see the baby, though, until DNA proved that she, the baby, was related to them. I'm, I understand that, but I would have been so frustrated yes. as the grandparents if I were in their shoes. I honestly can't imagine. Right. But wouldn't it give you that solace too, though, to have that like yes. for sure? But yeah. Proof. What's wrong with even seeing a baby? What's wrong with that? I don't know. But I mean, they got to protect the baby, of course. Right? Of course. So, yeah. but yes, I'm with you. So frustrating, but we understand. Detectives are in touch with the family and they confirm with them while waiting, of course, to understand what the heck to do. They confirm with them, yes, we found a baby, but we did not find Savannah. And Brooke was defiant when they asked her whose baby it was. Pretty much, again, everyone knew this has got to be Savannah and Ashton's baby. This is 
crazy. You're saying Brooke's defiant. I'm assuming that she's in custody at this point. Brooke is in custody at that time when they find the baby because they're like, you didn't have a baby. Let's let's go. You know what? I don't know how they got to that point. But yes, they brought her in very quickly. And William was then arrested at his job site. So they got Brooke out when they broke into the apartment, basically. Mm-hmm. And then right went right over to William and grabbed him from his um, job site. Brooke and William were questioned in separate rooms, as so often happens. Brooke stuck to her story that when Savannah left her apartment on August 19th, she was very much alive. And Brooke was also a little confrontational. Uh, William was much more defeated. He quickly was pointing a finger at Brooke, and he claims that Savannah gave birth on her own in her apartment and handed it to Brooke. And basically just saying, like, Brooke did nothing. Right. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. There was still no info being given on where Savannah was and what condition she was in. She alive? What's her well-being? Because we now are getting to a point where DNA is coming in. We're understanding, you know, simultaneously understanding this is indeed Savannah's baby. Where is she? You know, all of this stuff is kind of happening around the same time. So huge searches were led to find Savannah as news of her baby being found hits the media. And eight days after Savannah had gone missing, she was found. Kayakers were out kayaking, of course, on the Red River. As they were kayaking, they came across an object that was wrapped in like what looked like um, trash bags or like black colored plastic. Mm -hmm. Again, the documentary did show her body wrapped in this um, because you couldn't see her actual physical body. It just was very bloated trash bags with like duct tape around them to like hold her on. Contain it. Yeah, many of us may unfortunately be able to picture this in our minds. Um, They said that the object that they found floating was very odorous and human body size. Around 8.20 p.m. that same day, the object was retrieved and examination later confirmed that it was the body of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. Her autopsy revealed very quickly and very easily that she had died from some form of homicidal violence. It appeared that she had been strangled and that she was also cut from one hip to the other. There was no questioning by these findings that somebody had killed Savannah, a 22-year-old woman with her life and motherhood ahead of her, to steal her unborn baby. We had her body and cause of death, but now it was time to figure out who did this. Was it Brooke and William? And And motive. And why did this happen? Exactly. We know that it was most likely the baby, but this type of crime, this fetal abduction homicide mix is very rare, but it does happen. And again, well, and it's not just fetal abduction. It sounds like literally ripping the baby from her body, like. I I almost feel like fetal abduction sounds too nice. Not nice, but it it doesn't really paint the level of brutality that this took. She was cut hip to hip. My God. You can't even get a word out that would explain or paint just how grotesque and insane this kind of crime is, 100%. But we need to figure out 
-hmm. what would get somebody to the point where they're murdering for a baby? And again, was it really Brooke and William? Right. DNA confirmed what everybody believed, that the baby was Savannah and Ashton's, as we kind of touched on. And on August 29th, Ashton met his little four-pound, 11-ounce baby girl. He named her Hazley Joe. Joe was Hazley's middle name because Savannah's dad's name is Joe. And this is exactly what Savannah wanted. I love that. I love it, too. I mean, I love that he paid homage to, you know, Savannah's wishes and also the man who tried so hard to protect Savannah. It's beautiful. It really is. And it's so fitting. And what a cute little name. I just love it. Mm -hmm. The discovery and survival of said baby Hazley Joe gave the family a lot of solace and joy, which, you know, that is such a beautiful thing in this ugly situation that they still do have a piece of Savannah. Yeah, and a small silver lining. It's a small silver lining that that she survived this brutal attack. But of course, they were still mourning Savannah and questions continued to remain. What happened to Savannah in her final moments? Um, Brooke and William were charged with conspiracy to commit murder and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. So basically, they were kind of all they had to go off of in terms of who could have done this because the baby was in their apartment. But also, yeah, they just had enough evidence at that point to charge them. They both pleaded not guilty. And Brooke and William awaited their trials. Uh, while they were awaiting their trial, a journalist, Chris Hagen, searched for answers. He got really into the story and just felt the way many of us true crime consumers feel. Um, and he really kind of put in some groundwork. He visited the apartments that the Grey Winds lived in, as well as Brooke and William. And he spoke to a neighbor, and that neighbor mentioned that someone on apartment five was moving items out of the apartment. Like, they were shuffling things around, almost like someone was moving, right? So they were getting items out. We do know that apartment five is where Brooke and William lived. That's correct. He found where the items were being discarded, and he found books, photos, letters, and journals that presumably belonged to Brooke and or William. I'm sorry to interrupt, but do we know who was doing the moving? Because obviously, they're in Brooke and William are in custody at this point. We don't know, but what also could be inferred is that this moving was before maybe they were arrested, right? Maybe they're getting right. rid of evidence because guess what they found? He found in some of these journal notebook type things that belong to Brooke notes on like what would be midwifery. Right? Or midwifery. Are you kidding me? No. So he's finding evidence that basically shows she was trying to learn how to... It's premeditated. He's finding evidence that shows it being premeditated, which, as we know, can get you straight to first-degree murder right there. So this definitely suggested that they were planning on maybe the birth of their own child. But Brooke's tubes were tied, so... How could it be for their own child? That's not happening. Yeah. Right. Her fallopian tubes were tied. We come to learn that William was tricked by Brooke into thinking that her tube tie was reversed and that she was pregnant. 
for months, for months, she was living a ruse that she herself was pregnant, which is why earlier on in the episode, I said, we'll get to why she may have been presenting a ruse of, hey, I need help with this dress. Because she may say, I'm pregnant too. I'm sewing a dress for myself when I'm around your stage of pregnancy. This is my first child because they did not have a child with them. And we'll get to why that's a lot in a moment. But, right, hey, can you come help me? I'm trying to get a similar dress made that's going to be comfortable and fit later. To to me, this is just further evidence of her being a master manipulator. Yes, and she really, really was. But was she capable of that kind of brutality? Murdering for a baby? An unborn baby? That was still left to question. Aaron, Brooks' ex-boyfriend, mentions in an interview of this documentary that he and Brooke had a daughter, But Brooke abandoned both of them for another man. And he also lived with another older child of Brooke's. Brooke's oldest. From a different man. From a different man on top of that who came before Aaron. So this was the second child she had left behind. And Brooke ended up having seven children total before we get to her living with William in apartment five in the same building as the Grey Winds. So in William's mind, Brooke was pregnant with her eighth child, but the first with him. At least that's what the she led him to believe. Yes. And who knows how many of these seven children he did or didn't know about, though. Right. It's also of note that Aaron, remember this is the ex-boyfriend giving us a bit of the tea, His mom found a note, maybe it seemed to be more of like a journal entry from Brooke that claimed she was trying to trap Aaron in a relationship by getting pregnant. So, of course, she could live in this cycle. And this is what Aaron was sort of prosing is that maybe she lives in the cycle of like having a baby. And once the child gets to a certain point, she abandons, moves on to another man and almost sort of detaches from that and enters the cycle all over again with a new man and a new baby. It sounds like Aaron's suggesting that she uses the child as a means to getting what she wants. Yeah, and maybe it's just uh, she's into the baby phase and not the child and adolescent phase as well. You know, who knows what's getting her on the cycle, but clearly it's a bit of mental illness of some sort. And while Brooke was waiting in custody... Because needless to say, she's not the most mentally or emotionally stable human being. With Brooke in custody awaiting trial, investigators questioned her over and over again in hopes to maybe break her defenses down, getting her to give more details, that type of thing. She claimed now that an altercation had ensued with Savannah while they were upstairs in her apartment. She pushes Savannah. And Savannah hits her head on the bathroom sink. Okay, so now she has changed her story uh, yeah, after yeah. a few weeks Brooke and is, being caught red-handed. Yep. But what is she saying started the argument or like what started the altercation? So the tape of this interrogation or this conversation she's having about it, didn't really give a lot of details. But another article says that the prosecutors were mentioning that 
once they were upstairs, Brooke accused Savannah of mistreating cats and that that is why an argument ensued. So a little up in the air, but that's what the prosecutors were were stating in a court of law. So it makes me wonder if she was just throwing out anything to get Savannah amped up as a reason for her, for Brooke to hit her or something along those lines. Maybe. I mean, she could, I mean, she's grasping at straws here, obviously, right? right? She's awaiting trial. She has pleaded not guilty and is kind of a sitting duck while she's waiting for everything. So I think she's trying to save as much face as possible while she can. And, and her story just really kind of glossed over the idea that, you know, there was a murder and you sliced her hip to hip. Because she does say that, that, yes, then I got my knife and I got the baby. I'm guessing she kind of claimed because she wanted to, like, save the baby, so to speak. But right, and it's so apparent you wanted to steal the baby. Like, come on, just absolutely. spit it out. I mean, if she truly wanted to save the baby, I mean, she could have even saved Savannah because we did learn later on from the prosecution that Savannah was alive when this cut was made to get the baby out. Right. So... I mean, Brooke's lies aren't adding up. Right. Things are not adding up. Brooke also described in a deposition how she did try to convince William that she was pregnant. So she's starting to give way to this lie and say, yeah, you know, I did. I lied. And yes, I I emailed him a heartbeat from like a sonogram or something like that. She kind of emailed him and it was labeled heartbeat. And so she was pretending she was pregnant. And she did this supposedly because he had left her in January of 2017. The irony of the fact that this is also around the time when Savannah ended up getting pregnant, but we'll leave that there. Well, and it also is reminiscent of the story that Aaron's telling. Yes. That he and his mother found a journal entry of Brooks that said she wanted to get pregnant to trap Aaron. And what do you know? She wants, she's doing everything in her, you know. In her power to get him home. Yes, exactly. And even more so to your point, he had not just left her, he left her and went back with an ex-girlfriend. So like, not only was he with someone else, which already was enough to kind of push someone to get really desperate maybe, right? In, a, in mm-hmm. an emotional state. But also it was an ex who he had history with. We know that there's that competition. There's that idea of like, okay, there's history there and I want to be the better girlfriend. They were together longer. He can't go back together with her. Like, I don't know. I could go on and on, but like, does that make sense? It totally makes sense what you're trying to say. He's not just entering into a rebound relationship. This is someone who would make going back to Brooke a lot more difficult, but yes, introduce a baby into the mix and who's his allegiance going to be to. Bingo. Bingo. So it got him home nonetheless. And he got back with Brooke. So it was good that she sort of damned herself with some of that. Like she's showing her character and everything like that. So it's, it's not really good for her, but this is some truth kind of coming out. Right. As things sort of unravel in similar confessions, so to speak, as I was just mentioning, in December of 2017, 
Brooke changes her plea. She changes it from the previous not guilty to guilty of the charges previously mentioned. Conspiracy of murder, conspiracy of kidnapping. I mean, she really didn't have a choice, though. No. At this point, because the evidence is stacked so high against her. Well, and she has to answer. Right. Okay, whether Savannah knocked her head on a kitchen sink or whether you bopped her on the head with something else, she was unconscious and you took the baby out of her uterus. There's no, it doesn't matter how you got there, you did that. You still did it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. What a maniac. It's absolutely maniacal. And she, in a way, agrees. She said when she changed her plea, she's quoted as saying, I'm guilty. I deserve every year that I get. So I think she kind of At least came, we know she's not truly insane because she can at least see that she deserves what, you know, coming. she's going to get. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that it just helped the case get to a more spot of reality. And let's move on. Let's get mm-hmm. you charged. Let's get you sentenced. So it sealed the deal. And there would be no more trial, having pleaded guilty now. On February 2nd, 2018, Brooke was sentenced to life without parole. Now it's time for William's trial. What was his role in this? The man who was lied to about a pregnancy. When did he find out that she wasn't pregnant? And when did he find out about Brooke's ruse? To steal Savannah's baby. Right. What role did he play in that? All of this. To answer some of this, Brooke took the stand at his trial to testify against him. She had already been given life without parole, so she didn't have much to lose. There, they couldn't add any time onto that. There was right. She was in their good graces by doing so too, there by, you know, law enforcement or, you know, that type of thing. So here we are. She claimed that he hit her on August 6th while they had a very large argument. Maybe he had found out she wasn't pregnant. um, And he told everybody already, though, that she was pregnant. So he was pissed. And he told her that she better produce a baby. This is Brooke's story, right? This is Brooke's story. And that's maybe when the plan to Seville Savannah's baby was created, according kind of to, to Brooke's story. And in Brooke's story, does she say that it was solely her plan or was it her and William's plan to steal the baby? Well, that's a little bit. On, or is that vague? It's a little bit vague um, because, again, the way we get some of these pieces of true crime to the point of being able to mm-hmm. reiterate the story, you start realizing things that are left out. She pins him inside the plan, though, by saying on the stand under oath that William was the one that tied a rope, a noose, around Savannah's neck that day and effectively ending her life by strangling her with it. Okay. So she's putting him in the story on the stand. Regardless of what he had to do with creating the idea or not, he was there in her story um, under oath. He was there and he killed her with the rope. And yeah, like you said, she pins him to the actual act, the physical act of murder, which makes me wonder, is she doing it as an F you to make herself? Yeah. As an F you or as a, to a way to make herself sound a little bit better, come out 
not that she has anything to lose, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, who knows? Right. Who knows? Well, William also took the stand. Which okay, is we know this always, is very unusual. Yes, it's not always advisable. I think he was horrified by her testimony, by Brooke's testimony, and they decided he should take the stand. And while under oath, he claims, no, I did not tie a rope around Savannah's neck and strangle her. The first time I even saw the rope was when it was already tied around Savannah's neck, meaning she was already dead with a rope around her damn neck. So it just sounds like a lot of he said, she said going on. Yes. The only living witnesses to this crime Brooke and maybe William were engaging in he said, she said, under oath. So someone's lying under oath, which already is frustrating. Like, I mean, you can't force people to tell the truth just by putting their hand on their book of faith. But, I mean, come on. Like, someone lied. Who was it? We know someone's lying. We don't know who it was. What is the outcome of William's trial? The jury found that William was innocent of conspiracy to commit murder. Right. William, of course, continues to insist that, yes, I did not conspire murder, and thank goodness I was found innocent of that charge. But he did help clean up the scene. He said when he got home from work, called him to the bathroom, and there was Savannah along with the baby. He says they wrapped up Savannah, and they slid her in a bathroom closet and went to sleep. They slept with a dead body of someone whose baby they just stole in a bathroom closet of some sort. Like, huh. I don't care how tired I am. There's no way I'd be able to sleep with a dead body in my house. Yeah. It's just not happening. Especially if you had anything to do with that murder. Like, I'd be so freaked out. I'm such a rule follower that having broken a single, like, speeding law even, like, freaks me out. So, (laughs) I couldn't imagine. I'm the same way. Exactly. And the reason he gives for being okay with this and participating in the cleanup and the wrap-up of Savannah and her murder is that he couldn't turn his back on Brooke. So I guess he felt like he was in too deep. I don't know, but that's his weak-ass excuse. For me, I'm kind of thinking, and I even wrote my notes like, okay, but you did turn your back on her. You basically said her entire testimony was a lie. You had kind of already left her and come back. You pointed fingers at her from the almost the beginning. It's a shaky excuse at best. Yes. It's just like you already turned your back on her. So why wouldn't you have turned your back on her then? But yeah, it's it just doesn't add up. Now we know he turned his back on her. What was his sentence is he serving any time in jail what what's where is he at now william was serving life without parole for conspiracy of kidnappings remember he was found innocent of conspiracy of murder but not of the conspiracy of kidnapping juries if you haven't been on one do give two separate conclusions to two separate charges or whatever a conclusion for each charge i should say i do want to point out that most life sentences are 15 years. So when we hear life, we think, oh, right, until their natural death occurs, but it's really usually around 15 years. Yeah, and that may vary state to state, but 
It's right. nothing. Yeah. I it's nothing. Like it's ridiculous. William did appeal the life sentence that he received and claimed the dangerous and special offender statute had been misapplied. So apparently during his trial that he it feels pretty appropriate. <laughs> it I guess it sounds like it when you're looking at it black and white, but his life sentence was overturned due to that appeal. So whatever this dangerous special offender statute is, it may not have applied correctly during his trial. Now, there are a lot of loopholes. There's a lot of things Mm -hmm. in the legal world that might not seem appropriate that can happen that kind of do or that we just, I guess, don't understand. But either way, he did have his judicial right to this appeal, and a judge did say, hey, you know what, you're right in this case. So what that did was by saying, you know what, the dangerous special offender statute was misapplied, the Nebraska Supreme Court then overturned the life sentence, which then turned it into him receiving 20 years at the maximum, which he did receive the maximum 20 years. The judge, when sentencing, said, I want to give you maximum, and basically was like, I'm excited to give you maximum, you creep. Like, this has been a freaking clown show, a circus. You're getting maximum. Here you go. Only Brooke and William know what happened on that day, despite the fact that, right, they had both received life without parole sentences and had... Um, you know, we had one trial and the other pleaded, you know, guilty, but still only really they know what happened that day. Only they really know which one of them really killed Savannah. And in the meantime, all these questions still remain almost four years later, three and a half years later. Ashton and Savannah's family are going to have to explain to baby Hazley Joe what her entry into this world was like. They're burdened with that. Essentially, they're going to be telling her that as she was taking her first breath, her mom was taking her last breath, which is, I don't even know how you explain that to someone. Exactly. It's definitely going to be a unique situation for their family. I mean, you don't have support groups for a crime like this because fortunately and unfortunately in this case, it doesn't happen as often as one might think since it's not that it's necessarily unheard of. What we do know is exactly what you mentioned, that Savannah was taking her last breaths as Hazley took her first. And what they also presented as a prosecution was that Savannah perhaps even briefly woke up during this whole ordeal only to fall back into unconsciousness. And she may have actually even been alive as far as after the delivery. And a lot of these things can probably be presented on the stand by, like, a medical expert. I'm not exactly Mm -hmm. sure what was presented because, again, we didn't have a trial for Brooke, only for William. So who knows what was presented within what trial. Um, But they did, again, present that she may have remained alive after the delivery. And it's not shocking if the baby is alive. It does sort of show that the mother was as alive as one could be to keep a baby alive until she was fully taken out of the womb and, you know, cords cut and all of that horrific stuff. 
they do believe that because she was not given medical care, Savannah, that she then died from something as obvious as lack of blood, as bleeding out. Like, she wasn't, she didn't receive any immediate medical care from a major, major surgery. I know it seems routine, but a cesarean section is absolutely major, major surgery. I saw a TikTok once of an expat, of an American expat in Germany who had a C-section in Germany, and she was kind of, she was a nurse. So on her third day, she sort of started cleaning a couple things up, packing a couple things up, and her German nurse asks her, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I'm packing up. I'm assuming I'm going soon. I had a C-section. It's day three. She's like, get back in bed. You're not going anywhere. You just had major surgery. And it's like, you're right. Here in the U.S., after a few days with the C-section, you do get to go home for the reasons that our medical teams believe. But in Germany, she was explaining, like, this is major surgery. And a C-section that's botched in your upstairs neighbor's bathroom is major freaking surgery. And if you don't receive medical help, you're going to die. So, obviously, Brooke and or William knew that she was going to die, and they were going towards that. In her honor, legislation was introduced by North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp. Um, Savannah's law seeks to expand tribal access to some of the federal crime databases, and it also established protocols for handling cases of missing and murdered Native American individuals. It also requires annual reports to Congress of the number of missing and murdered Native American women. The reason that This North Dakota senator introduced Savannah's law is because she believed that if authorities have accurate statistics, that they might be able to direct patterns to help solve more of these everlasting missing and murdered indigenous women and individuals' cases. Luckily, Savannah's law did just become official public law as of October of 2020. My final sweet piece, if you will, for this episode is that the Greywind family and Ashton participated in a traditional naming ceremony for baby Hazley when she was just a few months old. She was given a sacred indigenous name by an elder who wasn't quite aware of the circumstances or that this was the baby of Savannah, supposedly, according to the parents. The name she received was Baptona, and it means survivor. Yes, I thought that that was so, I'm going to sound like an, like an idiot, but it's so cool. And like how awesome that she gets to, at all of her traditional, you know, and sacred Native American um future ceremonies, practices, etc. within the community be called Baptona Survivor. Like, incredible. And that's the story of Savannah Greywind. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at The Murder Diaries on Instagram at themurderdiariespod at gmail.com or check us out at themurderdiariespodcast.com. Natalie wants you to do something And I think you guys already know what it is, but she's going to tell you anyways. And you guys know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it again. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, better safe than dead. 
Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.